Hello and welcome to our series of podcasts on mental health in the community, brought to you by the Mental Health Foundation and the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. What we're trying to do is to share new ideas from around the world, addressing some of today's most pressing mental health challenges. I'll be talking to a number of Churchill Fellows who between 2016 and 2019 were funded to visit some of the world's best projects in this field and to bring fresh approaches for the UK. Our theme today is Growing Up and Growing Old. How mental health problems can affect people at both ends of the natural life span. I'm joined by Olivia Richards, currently running a literacy and well-being project called The Story Project, and by the family therapist David Humphreys. First to you, Olivia, and it's clear that good mental health starts early, and reading and writing at an early age really matter. And indeed, in preparation for your report, you said it started when you were a girl, a girl who, in your own words, was a bit of a warrior. Tell me about that. I think, like you say, we all have mental health. So as a child, I noticed that I um, was particularly worrying about things. But for me, the thing that really helped me was reading. So um, I know lots of people have lots of different strategies. But for me, reading was a great escape. Um, It allowed me to kind of switch off from things that I was thinking about. It also allowed me to kind of hear about other people's experiences and the characters that I was reading about and how they dealt with different worries and I think there's a quote by um, Roald Dahl and Matilda where um, she says she's never alone because of books. Well, let's look at the work you currently do within the story project. Tell me what it involves in practice, what you would see at school, how people use it and so on. Yes, so the story project has three stages really. Um, So the first stage is actually providing schools and teachers with a curriculum for wellbeing so that the teachers know um, exactly what skills children need to learn at each different age. So this can be um, emotional skills, um, it might be skills in terms of actually understanding what mental health is, and then actually matching those skills with a story. So finding a story that's out there, we're not looking for a story that's been written for that skill, we're looking for an interesting story. So for example, there's a book by Oliver Jeffers called This Moose Belongs to Me, and um, it's all about um, a young boy um, who thinks he owns a moose, but of course nobody owns moose because they do what they want. <laughs> so um, through that book, they're reading that book because it's really good, it's really funny, but also it fits with um, part of this well-being curriculum about friendship. We don't own our friends, you know, we have to, how do we treat our friends? Then um, there's also a resource that goes with that. So um, teachers are given a kind of lesson plan essentially where um, they are Um, They know which book to read, they know what the objective is, and they're given some suggestions for guided reading questions that pick up on these wellbeing skills, but also are how you develop literacy in school. And then they're also given the opportunity to reflect on themselves. So how does that story relate to you? So we've talked about the character in the book, and it's really safe because we've got distance from the character in the book, but um, then we have the opportunity to relate what's happened with the character in the book to ourselves. But the statistics that you um, reported on are really quite worrying. But a survey suggested that children are not reading for pleasure as much as they used to. How damaging is that? Well, I think it means that they just won't have that um, opportunity um, that particularly I know that I benefited from and that has really supported my mental health. But also that we know um, 
can support uh, as what I researched in my fellowship can support um, lots of young people's mental health so through not having that opportunity they're kind of missing out on that potential to to support themselves really and what damage is that doing them consciously or otherwise well I think there's two twofold part of it there's the damage to their um, academic um, opportunities so we know that literacy is kind of the gateway subject often described as um, through the fact that it's um, allowing them to access all parts of the curriculum um, without literacy they'll, they'll really struggle in a lot of their subjects but then there's also those emotional benefits and without that kind of um, exposure to different characters and different people um, and different experiences they're kind of missing out on that learning about how people can manage their emotions that 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 is kind of the risk because there is beyond the school a social cost to all this a social cost to getting it right and one to getting it wrong the social cost is that the lack of literacy skills that potentially might come with that so and the kind of lack of opportunities that might give um, young people but also um, the lack of opportunities they're going to get socially and emotionally by reading about characters by seeing characters who are like themselves maybe doing exciting things being exposed to kind of dreams for, for themselves and for um people like them which you can get from books too well this seems to be a good place to bring you in david because there are social costs to good family relationships too presumably yes i mean i think i mean as, as a family therapist the way i think about families is that the you know the the behavior of, of anyone affects other family members and that if you if you like stress one part of the family then that often gets reflected in the behavior of other people within the family and i think you know family therapists focus on relationships they focus on the way people relate to each other the way they communicate with each other and I mean, I think the idea of reading as a as a way of learning about ideas about how people relate to each other, being offered kind of models and and examples, is actually it seems to me a really really useful one potentially. Well, you've told us what a family therapist is, but how is he or she? brought into the family do you go to them or do they come to you and how do you if you like promote good mental health i mean family therapists in the uk historically have been part of secondary services in the sense of either in the community or in some inpatient units particularly for children and young people that's been the focus so i think people get referred in they typically either in children and young people services or adult services get referred in by gps i mean primary care is the is, is typically the first point of contact now olivia talked about young people at the beginning of their lives do you come across people at the end of their who struggle with it might be in their 60s in their 70s their 80s or whatever who for lack of family therapy are really suffering um, let me use a, an example I saw somebody recently who was getting towards the end of their life they're in their 80s um, they're very unwell and quite terminally unwell and they are living on their own they have contact with both of their now adult sibling uh, adult children and they were very very concerned at how to try to manage 
the issues that arose from that. They were concerned. They didn't want to bring their children in to support them they did, because they didn't want them to be distracted from their families. And, you know, the work I did with them was I initially suggested to this person that, they, that maybe we invite in one or other. One, one of the children lived quite close, so they came along. We spent some time talking about it. She was able to share her thoughts and feelings, her concerns. He was be able to address them, and they were very typical concerns. She's getting older. She's clearly very, very unwell, quite frail, and at the same time remains a mother who doesn't want to, you know, bother her children. Because that particular generation, perhaps unused to this kind of approach, it was more stiff upper lip, get on with it, and so forth. So did it come as a bit of a shock for them to realise that there is some sort of help for a problem that they may not even have thought existed. I think I think it's interesting because I think initially, I think probably, firstly, yes, there was a degree of shock. But I think there was also an expectation that I was going to somehow fix them in the sense of whatever was going on inside their head. I don't think this person was particularly clear how I was going to do that. But the idea that I might actually be looking at relationships and communication and that this wasn't, you know, that her, in this case, her low mood, her anxiety existed in the issues around that relating and that concern. I mean, she, you know, she was anxious about the fact that she was old. She was anxious because she was, she was dying. That seems to me perfectly reasonable. That's not pathology. That's, people do. Um... So I think it was that was probably the striking thing with this person was that she didn't she didn't expect a relational focus. She didn't. I don't think she thought I was going to suggest. Well, bring him in. So, so presumably, it comes a bit of a release and a relief yeah, for her. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think one of the things that that she was doing was trying to decide: does she share this? Does she not share this? You know, does she let them know? Is this going to worry them? All the things that. You know, as, as parents, <laughs> we know that can we, we can experience. Okay, Olivia, back to the other end of the spectrum. I mean, you've talked about an increase in poor mental health among children. How would that manifest itself in practice? What should teachers and parents be on the lookout for? I think that there are lots of different, obviously, experiences of poor mental health, and um, it's very individual for the child. But I think having so schools are becoming better at having an awareness of mental health and there are lots of different um, organisations now that will actually do training on how to recognise mental health in the classroom. So what you'd really be looking for is a teacher who has a relationship with that child to notice changes in that child, notice signs. And then also if there is um, kind of something that the teachers may be concerned about that for that child, it might be that they're looking into whether that child's um, struggling with their mental health. It might also be that um, there are obviously um, certain mental health conditions where there are a certain set of diagnostic you know, tools where you can, um, you can understand if a child's struggling with a mental health problem. So it manifests very differently um, depending on the child, but it's really about equipping the teacher, equipping the adults who are working with the child um, to know 
to have proper training on, on to be able to recognise that really. And I suppose in professional terms we're, we're talking about what's called social and emotional learning. I mean you've described five core competencies, self-awareness and self-management, social awareness and relationship skills and responsible decision making. How does that make for a, a healthier, happier young person? Um, well these I guess it's thinking about all the skills you'd ideally like a young person to have to ha- to feel happy and healthy. Um, so those particular um, skills have been outlined by CASEL, which is the Centre for Academic and Social Emotional Learning. Um, they're based in America. Um, in the UK, we um, often think about these skills in terms of um, sometimes it's described as character learning, sometimes it's described as PSHE, so personal, social and health education, um, sometimes as well-being. So um, it's really all these different types of things. At the Well, how I describe it to the children is things that make us feel happy and healthy. <laughs> having yeah an understanding of how having good friendships will make you feel happy and healthy, good relationships will make you feel happy and healthy, looking after yourself. So in terms of in school all those skills are broken down as into, okay, a child of age five to build these skills would be able to do this, 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 a child of age 11, you know, and working all the way up um, to when they're leaving school, um, how do those skills look like at each age, really? And presumably they're just as important as history and maths and geography and French and so on. Yes, well, it is. it has been proven um, in sort of academic studies that having these skills can improve attainment, um, I think by 11 to 17 percentiles. Um, it has been proven that this can lead to better out- life outcomes. So these strategies, they're important to learn just for, you know, to have that knowledge. But also these are strategies that children can use throughout their lives, actually, to, to make themselves feel better. And I think, you know, obviously, compared to other subjects, luckily in the UK, it's becoming um, statutory in 2020 for these skills to be taught. So it should be treated in an equal um, respect with other subjects. But also this particular subject and social emotional skills, this feeds into everything that's happening at school. It has to be a whole approach taken on by all teachers. So even if you aren't teaching social emotional skills, you still need to have that knowledge of perhaps in in history how do social emotional skills fit in with some of our historical characters and you know so it can be taught throughout the um, curriculum really. Okay well take us on your travels David you went to Canada and the US what did you pick up there that's going to help you in the future? In Canada I was looking at uh, primary care GP practices in various parts of Canada I was seeing a service that is very interesting, something called collaborative working, which is working across um, across physical and mental health, you know, GPs talking to mental health practitioners, mental health practitioners talking to, you know, other people involved, because, you know, the, the approach is essentially a holistic one. In Canada, there are particular challenges. Geography is one of them. Proportionally small population and a large landmass means that the way that they use resources is is quite creative. When I was in Hamilton uh, near Toronto, the, one of the therapists there who worked with issues around addiction, his furthest clinic was 300 miles away. Well, from here in London, that's Devon. You know, most of us wouldn't think to be driving to Devon 
to, to run a clinic. So he would go there and he would spend a week there and he would, during that time, he would run a number of groups, he would see people individually. So I think there, there was, it was the use of resources in the States, I think it was very different. Um, they've been developing what, they, what I'm calling collaborative working, um, which is basically in primary care, GPs, mental health practitioners, other physical health doctors if they're involved, um, family members and the, the client, patient, working together collaboratively to you know, work out what works best, what's going to be most useful, what's going to be most helpful. And did you find that their work with older people, particularly older members of the family, was providing you with some sort of blueprint for work here? I think, yeah, I mean, I think the I've already given an example in the UK, and certainly when I was in North Carolina, there was an example where a, 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 an older woman had come into um, the GP practice with her son. She um, had problems with diabetes, but the actual problem was that she didn't seem to be managing her insulin use very well. Um, what was interesting about that was that the GP, he had known her previously. He picked up that her mood was quite low. He just administered a very simple, very easily kind of used test and then invited her to, to maybe see the what they would call the medical family therapist, which is the mental health clinician. In the process of conversation with her, it became obvious that her son was in the waiting room. So there was a suggestion made that maybe it would be useful if he, if he joined us. So initially we met with the GP and with the woman and the son. Consents were obtained and nobody's acting unilaterally. We worked for about 20 minutes, half an hour, uh, addressing you know, what the basis of some of her low mood was. She'd lost her partner some time before. Um, she was worried about her son, and, you know, who was there, who was going to... And we could address those issues, and that, that's how it works, really. And the outcome of that was a very positive one. When she was seen subsequently, her compliance had improved. Her son was now aware of some of the issues, and so he could, could support her and address them. There is a category that you'll be familiar with in your own profession, hard-to-reach groups. Do you think age and older people fall into that category? I think they, they can. I think, uh, yes, I think they can fall into that category. I think there are, there are issues around economics, for instance, which, which, you know, which is if you're you know, on a low income, if, if, you know, if you're living on your own, uh, you know, if you've got to travel anywhere and your mobility is not great, it can make it very difficult for accessibility. However, of course, like my part of my argument is, and, and what I saw in it particularly, actually in Canada as well as in it, but particularly in the States, was that primary care, the GP practice, is often a focus. People will often somehow get themselves to their GP practice, but if you then say to them, okay, I'll refer you to the family therapist, and you, you'll see that person in six weeks' time, and they're actually they're not here, they're gonna have to, you're going to have to travel to somewhere else, and actually, you know what, that makes it, they're not going to do that um, but if it can be picked up there and then it seemed to me that is a, a really really useful opportunity and it's much less stigmatising 
Well, I suppose, Olivia, the work you do is partly to avoid some of the problems that David outlined there. When you were in the US, what sort of schemes did you see that are, are teaching you new things, both as a teacher and as a sort of practitioner? I got to see 12 different programs in total and they were all doing a real wide variety of things related to how reading and writing can support people's mental health. As a teacher what was really interesting were the schemes that were providing schools and teachers with um, curriculums that had a focus on literacy. For example um, collaborative classrooms um, who I visited in um, California they um, are actually giving teachers the training and the, the um, materials so that they can teach their literacy lessons with a social and emotional learning focus. In their materials they have prompts of what the kind of teachers could say, what kind of examples they could use, examples of stories that they can use, um, and but also with that literacy focus as well as the social emotional learning focus. Other projects were more either encouraging young people to do their own writing and tell their own story, which was really fascinating from an approach of those harder to reach young people and a lot of the places I was visiting they were working with um, children who were really disengaged and had really struggled in other aspects of the education system Um, but they'd really engaged in these programs so for example youth communication they had an actual um, publishing suite so that um, young people um, they were particularly um, focusing on children who'd maybe been in the care system and who had been in the justice system And they could come and write their own stories, but be treated as um, a professional. Um, So they would come and, you know, have deadlines, etc. And um, be encouraged that their story was important and worth being published. um, And supported emotionally with that. But also, from a literary point of view, this is going to be edited and this is going to be professionally produced. And what you run is the story project here. Are you going to learn from... Well, you are, (laughs) but in what ways do you think you are? Yeah, um, definitely. I think the big thing for me was this learning that of having the whole school involved and having a whole school approach to um, well-being and mental health and social emotional skills. So the first thing I wanted to do was obviously to be based in a school and see where um, the kind of support was needed. And um, through that was able to identify the, the skills that the children need Um, and work out an approach so that stories can be used throughout the school. So the story project at the minute is focused on sharing really good stories that are related to all those different aspects of social-emotional learning and providing teachers in the UK with the resources so that they can build literacy and social-emotional learning together. And it does change people's lives, doesn't it? Get it right and you really do make a difference in people's lives. Yeah and I think that was um, the the interesting, one of the interesting projects that I visited was called that, so Changing Lives Through Literature and um, they were based um, in the prison system in America so um, they were at the point where people could actually be sentenced to a reading program um so for sort of minor crimes and um they were seeing that people who'd taken part in this program rather than going to prison were having 50 percent reduction in recidivism because they were connecting with the characters they were being able to reflect on their lives and when they went to this reading program the judge was there their probation officers were there um 
but they were all being treated as equals. And I was lucky enough to be able to go and join um, one of these sessions um, when I was in America with um, Jean Tristine in um, Boston. And um, it was it was really powerful just to see the um, women who were at this um, particular meeting. So you obviously there, David, have professionals, people who are really very well qualified. And, and in the work that you studied, all the teams you met, you said, had master's level behavioural health clinicians or higher. So it was taken very seriously. Do you think we have that level of, if you like, seriousness behind it all? I think the uh, what's called the IAP services, which are the Improving Access to Psychological Therapy services, which give accessibility to people who are experiencing kind of mild to moderate anxiety and depression. I think those services are quite well resourced. I think there is an attempt to get some consistency of training. Um, and I think they're they're achieving that. I think it's taken a while, but I think it's getting there. I think in the US, one of the ideas, and this is particularly in the US, one of the ideas was that in a primary care setting where you are working with you know, physicians, GPs, it, it was quite important at least to have a kind of comparable level of training, not in medicine, but the, so there is a kind of a, a sense that there's a kind of inequality between the, the kind of the physician and the mental health practitioner. That's one of the reasons that have driven the idea of master's level and, and doctoral level. And presumably the funding's there too. If you've got these peripatetics travelling 300 miles, paying for hotels, paying for their subsidies, people have to be properly um, staffed and and funded. Yeah, but I I think one of the ways that it it works there is, I mean, I I had quite an interesting contrast in, in La Jolla in California. I was, I joined a service which is basically run by the University of California at San Diego, um, and they principally take people, in, you know, with insurance. So they are seeing people with private health insurance uh, and including some Medicaid. In uh, North Carolina, it was the opposite. This was a uh, federally funded uh, service which was basically open access to people without insurance, people just, you know, people who were just poor and you know, couldn't afford to buy healthcare. Um, and so there was a real contrast between those. In both cases, the services were provided by the training courses of the university. So there is a tradition that you know, the masters or doctoral level medical family therapists would be, and they were, they were supervised, so they were, there would, it was a, you know, it was a qualified medical family therapist with them but they would be delivering the services and they were contracted with whichever practice to to provide those services and presumably that visibility is important for older people who are not used to this kind of thing so they if they see it as a regular normal feature of it they're more likely to access it these were people were just there they were they were part of the part of what you see in a primary care practice, part of what you see in a GP practice. You're right, it makes it, it just makes it, if you like, the norm. Um, and in that sense, I think also helps to destigmatise it. It isn't that you're being sent off to the, you know, to the mental health centre. 
because one of the things you say, and it'll move very nicely to Olivia in a second, is it's important to have care across the lifespan. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've mentioned in my report, you know, in my own work, I've, I've worked, you know, with four-year-olds and I've worked with 93-year-olds. I've worked with people across all of those all of those ages I used to be uh, although I'm based in GP practice used to be employed by the the GP practice and they would refer whoever so I would see people in almost any and every combination and that's not to say that there is the place for dedicated specialist child and adolescent mental health services or adult mental health services or older people services but a lot of what happened, you know, what people come into primary care, it's a it's a place of focus. It's it's not a stigmatizing place, you know. I go, you go, Olivia goes, you know, we just do. And I think that makes it a, a, a really useful setting to pick up on those kinds of things. Well, let's get back to some of the projects, in particular the Pongo Teen Writing Project in Seattle. That seemed to be pretty good on a number of levels. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yes, it was really fascinating. Um, so their um, real focus was on the use of poetry as a way to express um, yourself. And um, again, I, I went to um, visit them when they were doing some of their projects and they went to a detention centre in Seattle and um, it was a really challenging place just to visit, let alone to be as a young person. And um, the young people there had, some of them were 13 and had been in and out of the youth detention detention about 10, 12 times, Um, just were really low, um, feeling really, really low. And the um, Pongo service, they um, had trained volunteers to be able to go and speak one-to-one with a young person. And through their discussions, um, they would turn what they say into poetry. So um, the young people quite often were so grateful to have someone to place that one-to-one interest on them and to see their kind of just talking about their lives being turned into something that's actually quite beautiful. Because in a funny sort of way, there's a kind of mirror image of David's experience, whereas the older people are reluctant and perhaps unused to this. Some of these younger people similarly were taken by surprise about what this bibliotherapy, as it's called, can do. Yeah, it is harder to reach young people, particularly in that instance. And I think just being able to see that some of their really difficult experiences could be turned into something really beautiful that people actually were really interested in reading or hearing about and make something beautiful out of it, I think was the the main point of there. Because, as you said, the people that they were coming into contact with people who were not unfamiliar with detention centres, homeless shelters, psychiatric hospitals and so forth. Not the most obvious, if you like, client group, but it worked. Yes, and I think they deliberately picked that client group because they are the hard to to reach people and um, they believe they could benefit from it the most. I think, obviously, with any kind of therapy um or expressive type of therapy there's you know you think about art therapy and things like that um having something you know just being able to express yourself and and see you know have what you're te- your, what you're saying taken seriously or um i guess taken out of your head and onto the paper 
um, is where the benefit is. I mean, are there, you work in a school uh, and in schools, but are there other areas where you could see this kind of thing working? And indeed, would you consider taking it out there beyond the school gates? Yeah, I think there are um, many places where it could work. And I think there are lots of programmes, um, even in the UK, that are beginning to do things like this, maybe in a slightly different way. Um, but I guess starting in schools, the real priority is that it will be that lifelong um, kind of that love of reading and start as earlier as possible, the better. But like you say, it could be, you know, particularly I'm interested in maybe looking into parents and whether there's something that could be done to, you know, to support parents who maybe, you know, there's obviously books that tackle the theme of parenting and things like that. Um, also looking at maybe new mothers, maybe looking at, you know, youth detention centres. So there's so many areas where, where this could work. Um, I guess it's just taking the time to 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 plan it out properly and <laughs> do it in the right way. And there was a great phrase you used, <laughs> that there are two ideas going on. The concept of mirrors and windows. Mm. Presumably mirrors looking at yourself yeah. and windows looking beyond. Tell me how important the balance is. Yeah, I think one thing that came up quite a lot when I was on my travels is which books you're choosing and um, books that are mirrors are ones where you get to actually see yourself um, in that book so you're seeing people um, from similar background to yourself experiencing similar issues um, so you're seeing yourself reflected so you feel part of something you feel like you're important you feel like um, there's other people like me and they've got those kind of um, issues and same questions but the windows is also using literature to look at people from other backgrounds so you can understand that better and have better empathy and more understanding of your community and, and the world, really. Well, let, let's, we're winding down now. So let's just look a little bit to the future, what you've both learned from the travels. I mean, five years ago, David, there was the NHS five-year forward view, I believe. Has it been effective? Does it need to be revised or what? What has happened since then, and it happened at the beginning of this year, which was the launch of what's called the long-term plan, and that took the findings from the five-year forward view and particularly some things called the Vanguard projects, which were looking to see, well, they were looking at things like integrating services, um, particularly kind of social care services, physical and mental health healthcare services. Um, and on the basis of those experience of that of that work and the findings, a number of recommendations were made and that's they were contained in the long term plan. The long term plan basically, as I mentioned, creates these primary care networks which are clusters of GP practices which are brought together and I'm currently working with one of those to develop uh, and I'm actually supervising a social prescribing service which is um, a way of, of, of you like creating accessibility in this case it's for principally young people um, between the age of 12 and 25 um, but it's one of the if you like the recommendations from from the long-term plan. That's and what would you add, if you had to add your own recommendations on the basis of your travels? In the IAP training, I would add a clearly distinct family therapy component. That would be one possibility. As I mentioned in my recommendations, I would, I would endeavour to help 
you know, staff, GPs, practice nurses, etc., in GP practice to become much more family aware. And I would, I would set out to change the nature of training and expectations of family therapists about where they worked. And what about you, Olivia? What, what, how are you going to bring this experience to bear? Whether it's poetry, whether it's animation, media, telling and reading stories to younger people in all this. Where, where, where should it go next? Well, I think my focus is training teachers and um, helping schools to bring kind of this approach um, into their curriculum so so they can use stories um, in a way that obviously they're already doing for English and for their literacy lessons and to build um, their literacy, but also to have that focus on the social, emotional and well-being perspective. So teachers know what that means, what skills those are, and know how they what are the right stories to use to do that and have some examples of how to do it really and let's not lose sight of the obvious thing here which is it's all about mental health Mm. in the end yeah and i think it's that like you said um previously it is that sort of prevention rather than cure so mental health is something we all have and helping young people you know from age four five to actually that's a normal word that they can use in their vocabulary and they're trying to have skills to be happy and healthy before it gets to the stage where actually it's become a problem. Olivia Richards, David Humphreys, thank you. And thanks to you for listening. This has been one in a series of podcasts sharing insights from the Mental Health Fellowships Programme. To find the full body of research, visit the Mental Health Foundation and Winston Churchill Memorial Trust websites. 